Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thanks very much. I don't get to speak in chapels very often, and so I'm very excited to be here, very honored to be at Columbia International. Uh, I asked a Baylor student how I should approach speaking in chapel, because you know Baylor students have to go, and, and she told me that I should think of it as my America's Got Talent audition, uh, that this would be a good thing to do. Now, I'm pretty sure that this was bad advice and that she was setting me up for failure. Uh, so I harbor a little bit of anger towards her and I am praying for her repentance. I assure you, I am not going to treat this as an America's Got Talent uh, audition. In fact, when I was a, what's this? No, you don't want to hear me saying. I don't know what that was, but. <laughs> I assure you, when, when I was an undergraduate many years ago at Biola University, it always annoyed me, in fact, when the chapel speakers got up and used the first few minutes of their talk to uh, enact the comedic routine that they never got to enact but always dreamed of doing. So uh, I know at least that flaw, and I'll try to avoid it. But I would like to think with you today about repentance, in part because I am thinking about that undergraduate who led me astray and who I'm not sure I can trust any longer. There are few more important practices for a Christian life and for the Christian community than repentance. And there are few more important features for a community, Christian community than knowing that we have repented. I have long been intrigued by this question. How do I know I have actually repented of my sins? What does it feel like to have repented? What does it look like? If someone lies to me, if they lead me astray, and I say, hey, you've led me astray, and they say, oh, I'm very sorry, I repent. In order for me to trust them that they have repented, I've got to know that they've repented. So how can I know that they have repented? If I am on my knees before God, confessing my sins, and I list, and it's a long list, I assure you, and I get to the very end and I say, oh Lord, of these sins and many more that I have left unstated, I repent. How do I know that what I have said to God is actually the truth? Is there anything more that I can do besides uttering those words? Because if I've really sinned, saying those words doesn't feel like enough sometimes. Now, there are certain sins where it's easy to make restitution. If I steal money from Jonathan Reebseman, he doesn't have much money, the poor fellow. <laughs> so this is a very bad sin. You may think that your college professors are in it for the cash. I assure you, they are not, right? If I steal Jonathan Reebseman's money, I've done something really, really wrong. Now, it's very easy in one way for me to make up that debt to Jonathan Reebsman. What do I have to do? I give the money back. But if I get up and I say that someone is 
a liar, and a moral reprobate. Those are words which create a reputation for them. How do I make restitution in that case? It's much, much harder. If I kill someone, how do I amend my wrong in that case? I cannot bring them back to life. It's not as easy as going back to them and giving them the money that I took from them. It's much harder to make restitution for some wrongs than it is for others. So if I am repenting of what I have done, and part of my repentance is making amends for the wrong, here's the problem. Some wrongs I can't make amends for. There's nothing I can do to fix the problem. And so if I'm going to repent from a wrong, and I'm going to know that I have repented, what do I do in those sorts of cases? It's a deep problem. And it is, to me, one of the most practical and important dimensions of the Christian life. And yet, growing up inside of the church, I don't know that I ever heard a full sermon on what it felt like to repent from my sins. The nearest that I got was hearing this metaphor, which we heard in the first song, which is entirely right. A repentance is a 180-degree turn in the other direction where you are walking one way, he picked me up and turned me around and sent me on a different way. That was as much as I heard about what it meant to repent, which is a helpful image and is right, but may not actually be sufficient. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna think with you through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians about the nature of repentance and what God has for us within the Christian life through this utterly essential Christian practice. I would say open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7, but I'm an old person and I'm, I, I hang out with students and I know that none of you have Bibles, so feel free to take out your smartphones. Oh, bless you. Oh, bless you. C, CIU is now my favorite, but notice, like, you guys come out strong. That's right. You guys are my favorite place. But notice that the Bibles were like the first five rows. If you're sitting in the first five rows, you're a Bible person. So first five rows, take out your Bibles. Everyone else, feel free to grab your smartphones. I know, I've just insulted the back half of the room. They're all like, how dare you? I see you. I, I see that Bible back there. It's good. Second Corinthians 7. Now, while you're turning to this, 2 Corinthians 7, we're gonna be looking at uh, verses five and following. Here's the setup for these verses. Paul has written 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul has accused the Corinthians of participating in all manner of wickedness. They've got problems in how they're doing the communion practices. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, this is just in the Bible. I'm just the messenger here. Paul raises the situation where a man in the Corinthian community has his mother-in-law. There's an incestuous relationship that's happening in 1 Corinthians. And Paul exhorts them to excommunicate the offender, but also accuses, I think, the Corinthian community of being complicit in this grave moral sin. He exercises the full weight of his rhetorical power to denounce the Corinthians and says, ought you, why are you proud? Ought you not rather mourn? 
because you have grave sin in your midst and you have done nothing about it. So this is 1 Corinthians 5. Paul has lambasted the the Corinthian community for their sins. Now, 2 Corinthians, turns out Paul's rhetoric worked. 2 Corinthians 2, we find out, hey, guess what? This person who was in sin, he repented. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 actually says to the Corinthians, don't be too harsh on the guy. Receive back one into the community who has repented of their sins. And then we get to 2 Corinthians 7 where Paul directs his uh, attention to the way in which the Corinthian community actually repented themselves. Second Corinthians verse five, I've got the NASB, I'm sure yours is different, but uh, roll with me. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though, here's the verses that I want you to pay careful attention to. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though not only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a salvation without regret, leading to salvation. Excuse me, produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, What zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Paul has an extraordinary list of adjectives here that describe the Corinthians' response, right? What fear, what earnestness, what indignation, what apology, he says, what sort of defense you made of yourselves what you were willing to do to vindicate yourselves before me after I accused you of grave wrongdoing. They were energetic in their repentance. They were thorough. They were complete. But it's the lines above that I'm most interested in. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us, so that you might not lose anything through us. Paul comes to them, he rebukes them. He says, you guys are enacted, like you're involved in grave sin. And they experience sorrow in this, but the sort of sorrow that doesn't suffer any loss. Now think about this for one second. What sort of sorrow or grief is it that does not suffer loss? 
If you lose a loved one, you weep, you grieve. And what you grieve is the loss that you feel, the good that you had that is no longer there. Grief, sorrow are just the appropriate human response to losing good things. But here, Paul describes a godly repentance that grieves, but yet does not suffer any loss. A grief that still retains everything. This is a, like, psychologically, this is a very confusing experience. It's very hard to know what this grief feels like. Because again, remember what I opened with. What does it feel like to know you've repented? What does it feel like to repent of your sins? And here Paul describes this godly grief that does not suffer any loss in anything. How do we make sense of this? Here's one possibility that I'd like to to lay out for you. And it's a possibility that has to do with the differences between God and ourselves. Now, stay with me as we think through this for a second. Because if what repentance is, is the the formation of our lives such that we are more Christ-like, then it's the formation of our lives such that we are happier at the end of it than we were at the beginning that we are more blessed, more Christ-like, more full of joy, more ourselves at the end of repentance than we are when we were in sin. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be happy? Have you ever thought about this? If not, I commend it to you as a research experiment. Take a class with Dr. Riebsman, and I mean this in all seriousness, where you think about what it means for God to be happy. Because if you think about who God is and what the conditions are of God's happiness, what you think is he's got all the virtues you can possibly imagine. That whole list of fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc., all of those are in God. God has the possession of every attribute that's worth having. He's all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing. His happiness is constituted by the fact that he is complete in himself, that he needs nothing, that he cannot be harmed, that he is, in one respect, invulnerable. An early medieval philosopher slash theologian, I like to think of him as a theologian, Boethius, described God's eternity as the complete and perfect simultaneous possession of everlasting life. God is so happy, he has life in himself, and life abundantly, he is the one who gives life, and you know that Christ is God, because Christ, when he comes in John and announces who he is, he says, I have life in myself, and it's been given me to give it to you, because it is a mark of God to have life in himself and to not be dependent or needy on anything else for our lives. Now think about us. It is a mark of the creature to be needy, to need God. Your happiness is not in yourself. 
Your happiness is in God. It's the, the most basic and fundamental difference between God and ourselves. God's happiness in himself, our happiness in God. And we're needy. We're dependent. We come out of the womb dependent on another human being. And of all the mammals in God's creation, humans are the most dependent the longest. Think about being a zebra. If you are a baby zebra, you live in a hostile world where you are vulnerable. How quickly do you have to be able to run? Very quickly. Because if you do not run quickly, what happens to you? The lions get you and you die. Lots of other mammals have lots of capacities very early on that human beings don't develop. We are so dependent for so long. Like, I know none of you are thinking about babies until you come to my talk tonight, in which case you will. But none of you are thinking about babies. But if you think about babies, they're just little bundles of joyful obligations. Like, all babies do is demand stuff from you. They're always eating, and if they're not eating, they're sleeping, and that's the only break that you have, right? And it's just, it's just obligations all the way down. They just, they, all they do is need you. And that's constitutive of who you are as a human being. You just get better at faking. Faking it as you grow up. But the baseline of your happiness is that your happiness is not in yourself, it's in God. But God's happiness can't be taken away. And if you participate in that happiness, guess what? It can't be taken away from you either. And you can experience a grief without loss that's godly because your grief is a renunciation of your sin as a participation in the invulnerable life of God in which you cannot lose anything that is worth having. And anything that you do lose in God is not worth having. That as you turn away from your sins, you recognize that in fact, I'm grieved because I spent my time on something that was not going to endure. That God in his providence would not preserve it as a part of my life because it was wrong. And so I think what Paul is getting at with this godly grief that does not suffer loss is a grief that actually participates paradoxically, very weirdly, in the joy of God. In which the zeal, the earnestness, the eagerness to shed the sins of our past is animated by a deep life. Which is why he sets the contrast between a sorrow that leads to death and this godly sorrow that leads to life. Because at the end of the day, how you respond to your sins, we think of sin as a, uh, to see it rightly, sin is a contest between life and death. But how you respond to your sins is also a contest between life and death. And if you do not repent, out of the life of God, 
which is given for you in Jesus Christ and which you participate in and in which is your possession, if that is not the animating principle of your repentance, then you will not have the confidence and the security to say, I have repented of my sins, they are gone, and I need not be troubled by them again. Which is a liberating claim that I think we all want for our Christian lives. And so repenting in this way, it has to be participation in the life of God. Now what, what, what might this look like? If we think about what sin is, there are lots of goods in this world that are not God. I don't know if you've realized that. I think probably most of us have. Most of us struggle with loving the goods of this world that are not God in ways as though they are God, right? Our sin, in one respect, buried beneath it, beneath every sin, is some love of a good that is a really a good. The person who is proud, who boasts of their accomplishments too much, who takes up the airspace of every room that they're in, who takes every conversation and turns it to themselves, the person who does that, at the very bottom, the very center of that distorted practice is a love that they have for something that is good, namely themselves. The problem with pride is not that you're bad and you should think that you're bad. The problem with pride is that you're good and you think that you're better than you are. And the remedy for pride is seeing your goodness for what it is, which is a limited derivative goodness that's good only insofar as it's good in God. That all of the secondary goods, all of the goods of this world are good when we love them in God. And if we do not love them in God, then they cease to be good for us. The soccer player who plays soccer does a good thing. But if they play soccer and regard it as an end unto itself and devote themselves to soccer in such a way that they would give life, body, and soul for soccer, they may love soccer too much. And I pick on that just because it's on my mind for obvious reasons. But this is true of the pianist as well, of which I am one. It's true of the thespians and all of the good things. But hear me say that they're good things. But sin is this distortion of God's goods in ways that we love them too much. And so our repentance is, in one respect, a turning away from sins, but more fundamentally, it is a turning to God and a revaluation of the good things that we had loved in God. Such that it may be the case that the person who loves to soccer, soccer too much, you know what they need to do? They need to play soccer. And they need to play soccer in a way that allows them to love it in God. 
So repentance might look like that. But if sin is this distortion of secondary goods, it might also involve a renunciation, a turning away from secondary goods as a mark, as a sign even to ourselves in our own lives that we are trying to love all of God's creation in God and that we are not confusing those two things. So we might, for instance, if we have a problem with telling the truth, we might give up speech altogether for a season insofar as we can. Because we turn away from the secondary good of communication in order to remind ourselves that this is a good which is only good if it's ordered towards God. We might hit, come at our sins sideways. If we have a problem with sex, we might choose an unrelated secondary good and give that up to remind ourselves, to show ourselves that we are loving the whole creation, but only as it is in God. So if you have a problem with sex or porn, you might embrace fasting from food as a regular part of your life to clarify, to authenticate for yourself that you have repented of your sins and to confirm within yourself that you love the whole creation only as it is within God. And renouncing this particular secondary good is a sign to yourself of your own repentance. It's a demonstration of your eagerness, your zeal, your energy to live in God. Whatever that is, whatever those look like, at the end of the day, your repentance has to be completed by the fulfillment of your capacities in love for God and for your neighbor. In 2 Corinthians 8, this is very amusing, right? Paul has just like said, hey, you guys repented so well. You've done just great, fantastic, A-plus job. Oh, by the way, 2 Corinthians 8, do you want to give me some money? Not me, actually. I'm collecting for the church in Jerusalem. And you know who, like, who did some good stuff? The other churches. And I want you to be like them in demonstrating your zeal for good works by giving money to them. Because what's the end of repentance? The end of repentance is love. And it's generosity. And it's the giving of ourselves to God, which invariably and necessarily within this life looks like the giving of ourselves to our neighbor. And so to show ourselves as having fully repented of our sins, of having zealously and energetically turned away from them, we might, we might contemplate what sort of life we are called to lead and devote ourselves to new practices of service and sacrifice for our neighbors. Not because we're trying to pay for our sins, but because our repentance is a mark of the life that we have in Christ. And the life that we have in Christ is a life of love and the fulfillment of our capacities. It's a life of our flourishing when we become most ourselves. And to have repented of our sins is to enter into that life in a newer and deeper way, to become more us, to fulfill our capacities more than we had fulfilled them previously. 
everything around you will want to prevent you from experiencing this life and this repentance. Most of us, the great threat are not spectacular sins like adultery or murder. For most of us, the great threats to experiencing this life are the attachments to minor secondary goods that suck our hearts, our time, and our attention, that deprive us of the energy and the life that God has called us to. The entertainment, both the bite-sized entertainment of TikTok and Twitter that we fill our moments with, and the long-form entertainment of Apple Plus, or Netflix, the entertainment is the great threat to allowing us to participate in this sort of life. And perhaps as we go forward, as Christians in a community, we should think very seriously about what our repentance might look like and what secondary goods we can say no to in order to confirm for ourselves that we have actually renounced our sins and experience the life that God has for us. Because that life is better than anything else on offer. And it's a life that few of us have even glimpsed or tasted. But once we taste it, there's no going back. True repentance is a hard thing. It's a hard thing. In fact, true repentance is so hard that it's a miracle. It's a miracle of grace in which the Holy Spirit comes into you and animates you with life and moves you to do this thing and draws you deeper into himself. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we ask for this miracle. Of all the miracles, Lord, this is the greatest that you can do for us, to give us true repentance, to deepen our renunciation of the goods that would keep us from you, and to deepen our appreciation of those goods that would draw us to you. Lord, I ask for these students that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would draw them deeper into the life that you have for them, that you would guide and direct them in all their ways and doings, that they might know you and participate in your joy in all their doings, which can never be taken away and can never be diminished. We ask this in Christ's name who secures it for us. Amen. Thanks. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. 
Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.